Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Now, of course, today we are in our our final uh, week of Advent, the final message of Advent before Christmas Eve or before the Christmas candlelight service, uh, which I know on the, the, the slide program, the, the video before the service, says the 22nd. That's wrong. It's actually the 20th. Uh, the person who made that slide has been fired. Um, and it's me. Uh, so... See y'all later. Anyway, uh, so it's, a, it's Wednesday the 20th. It's not the 22nd, it's the 20th. But anyway, uh, this is our final week. And of course, Advent uh, means coming or arrival. And during this, this season, uh, we want to really focus a little bit more on what Christmas is truly all about. It's not, it's not about uh, the presents and the trees and the traditions and the movies. And it seems like every year they make four or five new uh, Christmas movies. I'm not talking about the Hallmark movies, who in case you didn't know, made 42 Christmas movies this year. All with the same plot. That's too many movies uh, for Hallmark to do. But anyway, besides all the Hallmark Christmas movie that some crazy people enjoy, uh, you know, they seem like you get new Christmas movies every single year. And there's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with, your, with the traditions of Christmas, with enjoying the season of Christmas, kind of the wonder of Christmas, especially... Uh, with smaller kids, you know, during, when our kids were younger, uh, Christmas was just a more of a magical time uh, when you had little kids and, you know, you, they could uh, wake up with Santa. I remember one year um, I photoshopped Santa uh, having a cup of coffee with me in April. And those stupid kids believed it. They're so gullible and dumb. Uh, there's nothing wrong with all that. Uh, but it, it, it's, Advent goes a little bit deeper. And before we get, we get going, uh, I do want to say something. Unless I am reading scripture, I would like all eyes up here. That's your first non-specific warning before I start calling people out and taking presents back. Um, anywho, <laughs> anyway, so uh, Advent, we, we look at the coming of Christ. When he came as a baby, be born of a manger to live a life for us, to die in our place, to rise again, to redeem us. But we also look forward to his second coming. Uh, where he's going to come back and take us to heaven with him, and then he'll come back and set up his earthly kingdom, and we'll rule and reign with him for all of eternity. And so this week we're looking at the advent of love. Now, love, it, it you know it's a, it's a confusing topic. It should be an easy topic to preach. The Bible is all about love and God's love for us, but our culture has really kind of twisted what the true meaning of love really is. You know, you ask a hundred people. What do you love? You're going to get a hundred different answers. Uh, I love my, my family. I love my wife. Uh, I love my job. Uh, I really love my dog. Uh, I love fajitas. You know, I love, you know, people, you ask people what they love and they, they love all kinds of things. I, and, and, you know, sometimes we love things that don't make sense. I love UVA football. Doesn't make any sense. They hurt me constantly, but I still love them. Uh, and so we, we love all these things. And, of course, TV shows, there's TV shows like The Bachelor, and now there's The Golden Bachelor, who I'm not going to ask if you watch it because I really don't want to judge you, but I will severely judge you if you do. Uh, the Bachelor or The Bachelorette or The Bachelor in Paradise 
or the love boat and all these things where, where love becomes a, a, a prize to be won and an entertainment venue for people. And so uh, we really kind of have cheapened the idea of what love truly is in our culture. Uh, this morning we're going to look at probably the most well-known verse of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, but before we get to it, we're going to look at the context surrounding it and see what is going on in this story. Uh, and in this, this Scripture, we, we see God's love for us. We see what love is really all about. And when you, when you really understand how much God loves you and how God loves you, it really it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You know, why would God love me? Why would God care about me? You know, the, the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe loved me so much that He left the glory of heaven. He put on flesh. And sometimes we kind of misunderstand what's going on here because, yes, He was 100% God, but He was also 100% man, which means he, he dealt with all the things we deal with. He had to deal with, with sickness. He had to deal with, with heartache. He had to deal with rejection. I'm sure at some time in his life, he had to deal with a stumped toe. You ever stumped your toe? It's, just, it's the worst pain in the world. And he left heaven where he never stumped his toes to come to earth to deal with pain and, and, and weather and people. And I've always said, you know, the ministry is wonderful. It would be so much perfect if it weren't for people. Uh, people I don't get. Uh, but anyway, I love you all. I don't like people. Um, but why would God leave all that to, to come, to, to, to put on a frail, finite body to deal with everything we have to deal with on earth, to be falsely accused, to be viciously murdered? Not because he couldn't get away, because he chose to. He allowed himself to be brutally beaten, brutally massacred for my sins and for your sins. To be buried and rise three days later. And he did that because he loves me. And that, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, why, why would God love me? I've got nothing to offer him. I've got nothing to the, I don't bring anything to the table in a relationship with God. And so we're going to look at John chapter 3, verse 16, but we're going to look at it in context. So we're going to look at, starting in verse number 1, to see really what's going on. So let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except... God be with him. So this man named Nicodemus, he, he comes to Jesus at night. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that in a minute. But he comes to Jesus at night to ask him a question. You know, Jesus, Nicodemus was a religious leader of the Jews. Uh, when you really look at what the Bible says about him and who he was historically, he was one of the most prominent Pharisees. He was very well known. He was very well educated. He was very powerful in the Jewish culture. 
uh, of course, and the Pharisees were Jesus' biggest opponents. They were the ones who stood against Him. They were the ones who preached against Him. They were the ones who convinced the Romans to have Him executed. And they were the ones that convinced the crowd to cry for Him to be crucified instead of Barabbas, a murdering rapist rioter. They said, no, let Barabbas go murder this guy. The Pharisees are the ones who put all these things in motion and opposed Jesus uh, more than anyone else. And because one of the reasons was they put more weight on the rules they came up with than they did the Word of God. You know, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, has a lot of laws. And, you know, there's a lot of laws in there. Laws about what you can and cannot eat, what you can and cannot wear. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, style of clothes. You couldn't wear mixed fabric. You couldn't wear wool with, with cotton or leather with cotton. You know, you couldn't wear polyester. Well, they didn't have polyester. Uh, so that's why you really, that's really why you couldn't wear it. Uh, but the wealthy could get silk and they could get leather and they could get cotton and you couldn't mix these fabrics together. Uh, how you could plant fields, what you had to do with your fields, how to treat family. So the, the Bible had a lot of laws that God had given Israel to obey. And the purpose of the laws, because no one could really obey all of them, but the purpose of the law was to show that they needed a Savior that they could not save themselves. But the Pharisees took it a step further. And they would put all these rules in place to make sure you were keeping God's laws. And they put more stock and more weight on their rules than they did on the Word of God. Uh, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They declared that He was a heretic. And after the resurrection of Lazarus, they put their plan in motion to have Him killed. But Nicodemus, this, this very powerful, very prominent Jewish religious leader, this Pharisee, wasn't so sure. He had doubts. He said, I know what the Pharisees say, but I've seen what Jesus can do. I heard His teaching. I've seen His miracles. And I'm not so sure that we're right about Him. He was a good man. He, he truly wanted to serve God. And so he's wrestling with everything he knows based on his teaching and his, his, his upbringing as a Jewish Pharisee, but everything that people are saying about Jesus, the things he's seen about Jesus, he, he might be the Messiah. Now, as a ruler of the Jews, it means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the Jewish equivalent, or Israel's equivalent at the time, of our Supreme Court. They ruled on, you know, if people had messed up or people were obeying the Word of God, they were the ones who, who kind of interpreted the laws for uh, Israel. Um, you know, Rome, they didn't really know what to do with the Jewish people. Because uh, Rome, in Roman government, in Roman rule, you could worship any God you wanted to worship, any way you wanted to worship. You just could not say that your God was the only God. And then you've got the Jews who are monotheistic. They, they believe, they teach, their God is the only God. And so Rome had tried to get them to stop it, but the Jews were just so stubborn. They finally say, look, you can have your religion, you can worship your God, you can say that your God's the only God, you just can't say it to anybody else. So they kind of allowed them to have the Sanhedrin to, to rule over them and to take care of any spiritual or religious issues that came up in Israel. So, so Nicodemus is a very well-educated man. He would have had the, the Torah memorized. He was an expert 
in the law of God. He is a powerful man. He holds one of the highest political positions available to a Jew under Roman rule. He's a curious man. He, he, he asks questions. Uh, he's not afraid to admit that he doesn't know everything. He's, he's very courageous. You know, the Pharisees, they're, they're out to destroy Jesus, and he's going to Jesus to get some, some questions answered. Now, he is courageous, but he's also not naive. He knows that what he's doing is dangerous, so he goes at night. Look at verse number 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he, he tells me, because, you know, I recognize and I realize that there's a very strong possibility you are who you say you are. You obviously come from God. No man can do the things that you have done. No man can teach the way you have taught except he has the power of God on his life. And Jesus responds to him by saying, unless you're born again, you're, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't seem like a legitimate answer to what Nicodemus had said. Now Nicodemus didn't, give, didn't ask a question. He just made a statement, hey, I believe you come from God because no one can do what you do except they come from God. And Jesus says, well, unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, Nicodemus uh, is a moral man. He's a hard-working man. He knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He is a religious man. And so, what Jesus is saying to him is He's saying, Nicodemus, you think you know God because you know about God. But you won't even see God unless you're born again. He's doing something that everyone who accepts Christ as their Savior has to have done to them. He is stripping Nicodemus of the belief that he can save himself. That if he's moral enough, or religious enough, or he does enough, then he is able to save himself despite what God says. He's, he's removing him of the, the thought and the belief that, you know, if, I've, if, I go to, if I go to the right church, you know, not just any church, I've got to go to the right church who uses the right Bible and sings the right music and dresses the right way. And if I do all the right things, then God will accept me. Then I can earn salvation. And Jesus tells him that is not how we get a relationship with God. Religious duty does not save. And the, the, the terminology he uses is very important. He says you must be born again. None of us did anything to be born. Your, your parents did everything. Your mother did everything. You did nothing. You were created. You stayed in the womb for Nine months, maybe a little less than most, maybe a little more if you were a little late, but you stayed in the womb for nine months and then you, you were born and it wasn't very traumatic for you, but if you've ever seen a woman deliver a baby without epidural, it's pretty traumatic for her. And it's pretty traumatic for the husband because you know, she's squeezing his hand and it just really hurts when a woman squeezes your hand. You know, that's, just, that, that, that's a pain no woman will ever know uh, when they're going through that. We weren't born 
because we did anything. We didn't try real hard. We didn't work up the effort to be born. We were just born. We did nothing to get it. That's how salvation is. You do nothing to earn salvation. It is a free gift that God gives to us that we have to accept. It has nothing, salvation has nothing to do with us. It is all of God. Let's keep reading in verse number 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not know whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? So Nicodemus, he's, he takes Jesus literally. He's like, well, you know, I was born one time and I, I can't, I'm too, I'm too old now. His mom's probably dead. But it's like, even if my mom's not dead, I, I can't crawl back up in her womb and be born again. That's, that's weird. That's going to kill her. So how am I going to, what do you mean I must be born again? And Jesus says, look, everyone who was alive was born physically. Everyone here, you were born physically one time. But to have eternal life, we have to be born spiritually. Then he uses the example of, of wind to try to help Nicodemus understand. Now look, when we feel the wind, we can, we can feel its direction. We know where it's coming from, we can kind of judge how, how hard it's blowing, and we know when it stops. Now, but where does a breeze start from? You know, we don't know where that breeze began. We don't know what started it. Now, I know today we do. Today we know that, you know, atmospheric pressure moves air around, and that creates the what we know as wind. But Nicodemus did not know that in this time. They didn't have meteorologists to tell them. They didn't have Google, which is what I have, to tell you where wind comes from, to explain where wind comes from. To them, wind was this kind of mystical, unknowable force. We don't know where it starts. We don't know once it's gone, we don't know where it's going. We can feel it when it's there, but then when it's gone, we have no idea what's happening to it. It was an unknown thing. So Jesus is telling him, look, Nicodemus, your finite mind cannot understand the things of God. You can't understand the things of God any more than you can understand the wind. Then look at verse number 10. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do not that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whatsoever believeth, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, Nicodemus still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus very politely, 
very, you know, nicely, says Nicodemus, you're an idiot. You're, you're never going to understand the things of God. Then he uses something that Nicodemus will understand. He uses the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel, once again, had rebelled against God, and once again, had angered God. And so God, once again, sent judgment to them. And this time he sent it in the form of fiery serpents. Uh, now, we don't know if these were serpents that were actually on fire, or if just their bites stung so bad. They called them fiery serpents. We know they were snakes, and snakes are of the enemy. Snakes are evil and should be murdered unless they're a black snake or a garter snake. I'll leave them alone. I will chase down a copperhead with an M16 if I have to. Uh, black snakes, and you know, I'll leave them alone. Uh, I'm not going to mess with I'm not going to get near them, but I'll, I won't bother them. Um, but a copperhead, man, they're mean. Anyway, uh, so these serpents would come through the camp, and because people had sinned, they would be bitten by these snakes, and anyone bitten by the snake would die a very slow, a very painful, very agonizing death. So, of course, Israel, once again, they cry out to God in repentance. They ask God to forgive them, and they ask God to save them. Now, God, because He's God, could have easily said, okay, took, taken away the serpents. But he doesn't. He tells Moses, here's how to remove the penalty of the serpents. Make a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, and lift that stick up high in the camp. And when someone is bitten by a snake, if they look to that bronze serpent lifted up, then they will be saved. Now, God didn't give them an antidote. He didn't remove the serpents. He took away the penalty of the serpent. They would no longer die because of the bite that they suffered. And so, if they had faith in, in, in what they were doing and looking at that serpent, they would be saved. Now, they didn't understand why it worked. Moses didn't know why it worked. Nicodemus didn't know why it worked. But they knew it did. They knew that I don't know, I don't know the, the, the theology behind it. I don't know the physics behind it. I don't know the biology behind it. But I know if I look to that serpent, God will save me. If I look to that serpent, God will heal me. If I put my faith in it. And what Jesus is reminding us of is we as humanity, we need to be saved from the penalty of sin. Saved. The penalty, the sting of death. The penalty of hell. The separation from God. And Jesus gives us that salvation. Jesus removes the penalty of sin through His death, burial, and resurrection. Now we can't fully understand why He did what He did. Can't really wrap our minds around the theology of why He did what He did. And I don't have to. I just have to believe He did it and look to Him for salvation. And when we do that, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Then we get to the, the most famous verse in all the Scripture, the verse that anyone can quote if they're not a Christian. Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but of everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him 
might be saved. So I want to look at two things in this passage this morning. We'll look over at 1 John in a minute. But here's the first thing I want to look at. Number one, God is love. God is love. See, love isn't something that God has. Love isn't something that God shows. It is who God is. His very essence, His very being is love. And that's that's unique to every other religion in the world. At the center of reality, there is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, whose very essence is love. God the Father loves the Son. God the Son loves the Father. God the Son loves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves God the Father and God the Son, and so on. It's a, it's a circle where they, they, they are just made of love, and from the overflow of that love, God pours His love out on creation. That's why we have beauty in the world. You know, that's why we can enjoy, not today, but normally, a, a beautiful sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains. That's why we have wonderful scenery. That's why we have things like the Grand Canyon and the Northern Lights and just beautiful things throughout nature. That's why we have good food. That's why we have bacon and eggs and steak and shrimp and sweet tea. We have these things because God loves us, because God is love. If God's very essence wasn't love, He would just create a world with, basic, with our basic needs met. And we see that in, in, in the, the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. That he gave them bread and water every single day. Now, the manna from heaven, it gave them you know, all the nutrients they needed, all the calories they needed, all the, the, the vitamins they needed, the water kept them hydrated. And I know the Bible says, you know, it's little cakes of honey. And I like to say, oh, it's honeycomb cereal, and I love honeycomb cereal. But I'm not going to be happy eating honeycomb cereal breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years. They're going to get sick of it. But all their needs were met. Yeah, but they, they didn't have coffee. They didn't have sweet tea. They didn't have good food. When, when they complained about not having good food, God sent them quail to eat, and then those that chose to eat the quail, God killed them. So He could have just met our basic needs. And every day... We wake up and there's bread growing on our front lawn. And we just, it's tasteless, but it gives us all we need. But He didn't do that. He gives us wonderful things. Beautiful things. Incredible things. Why? Because God is love. God does loving things, but He does it because that is what His essence is. Now look over at 1 John chapter 4. <coughs> 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. It was manif- in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only Son, His only begotten Son, into the world, that we might live through Him, here in His love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love 
one another. Here's what, what John is trying to tell us here. I should love you. Not because you're worthy of love. Not because you have earned my love. I should love you because God loves me. And God loves me, and I am unworthy of His love. I haven't done anything to earn His love. I haven't done anything to desire, for Him to desire to put His love on me, but He loves me regardless. So, because He loves me in my unworthiness, because He loves me in my filthiness, in my rejection of Him, and my, my sometimes, as a younger, you know, before I even knew Him, as my hatred of Him, he loved me in that I should love you no matter what. You know, too many people, we have a, a group of people that we just, we cannot love. Now, hopefully, you don't have those in your heart where you don't love someone because of the color of their skin. If you do, you really need to check your, your, your relationship with God right there or because of their sin. But we have, we have a group of people we just, we, we have a hard time loving. Hokey fans. Have a hard time loving them. Don't, don't, don't like them. Really, there's a few of them I can tolerate because they're friends, but the majority of them, lump them in, don't like them. Alabama fans, same way. Uh, just do not like them. But, you know, it is joking. But, you know, some people like, well, I can't, I can't like those people because they have different religious beliefs than me or different political beliefs than me. We have this group of people that we just kind of lump in and say, well, their beliefs, their practices, it goes against everything I hold dear, so I cannot like them. I cannot love them. But here's the thing. You have things in your life that goes against everything God stands for. On a daily basis, you are a rebel to God. You sin on a daily basis. But despite what you do, and what you stand for, and how you oppose God, God still loves you. My love, even for my enemies, is not rooted in them, and what they have done, and what they can do for me. My love for everyone is rooted in God's love for me. I know what I am. And if God can love me like I am... I can love other people like they are. Now, that doesn't mean I accept all the things they do, and I'm fine with all the things they do, and I don't... Because, look, God loves me, but He hates my sin. My sin still hurts Him, but He still loves me. I can love people as they are. We love because we have been loved. While I was His enemy, God loved me. So love is a byproduct of knowing God. So what John says here is if you have hate in your heart for any one person or any group of people, you need to check your relationship with God. Hate is kind of the check engine light for your soul. It means there's something not right between you and God. If you don't love, John says, you don't know God. John says, hate, even for your enemies, is a sign you're not near to God. And then there's a second thing found in this passage that you know, some people struggle with. I struggle with it. You know, I get that God loves the world. 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That word world means cosmos. It means every person who's ever lived regardless. God loves his creation. God loves humanity. I get that. But how can God love me? I know me. I'm not lovable. You can ask her. There are some times in my life I'm not very lovable. Well, I can be kind of hateful and mean and just angry or irritated or you know, not often, you know, only once or twice a day. But uh, I'm not lovable. But God loves me regardless. You know, a lot of people struggle with that. They, they hear that. They, you try to tell them God loves you. You know, yeah, God loves the world, but God loves you. And they think, but how can, how can God love me? I know what I've done. I've had a divorce. How can God love me? I've had an abortion. How can God love me? My past is marked by sin and shame and heartache. How, how can God love me? I'm struggling with such a terrible sin right now. How, how could God love me? That's the voice of the enemy. Telling you you're not worthy. He has to convince us that God's love doesn't apply to us. You know why we... So many people believe the enemy over believing God because we know us. I know me better than anybody else knows me. I know me better than April knows me. And I know how bad I am. I know the thoughts I think and the th things I have. I know those things. And God still loves me. When we embrace the love that God has for us, it becomes a lot harder to drift away from God. When I embrace the love God has for me, it becomes impossible for me to hate anyone because I know me and God loves me. Second thing we'll look at is number two, how do we know God loves us? Back in verse number nine of first John chapter four, in this was manifested or shown the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. How do I know God loves me? Because Jesus came to save me. I know God loves me because I can look to Bethlehem, and I can see God becoming a man. I can see God putting on flesh. I know God loves me because I look to the life of Jesus. And I see Him living a life I can never live. I see Him living a perfect, sinless life that I never could. I know God loves me because I look to the cross. And I see Him absorbing the wrath of God for my sins. Not His sins. I see an innocent, perfect lamb taking the punishment I should have taken. I know God loves me because I look to the empty tomb and I see Him risen again to redeem me to God the Father. I know God loves me because I look to the ascension of Christ and am seated at the right hand of God, going to God on my behalf. I know He loves me because of the Gospel. And He did all of that. Not because I'm worthy. Not because I earned it, because I never could. He didn't do it because I loved Him, because I am terrible at loving God. We are all very terrible at loving God back. He loved us first. He came to us. God loves me 
Because God is love. God draws us to Him over and over again because He loves us despite how bad we are at loving Him. Then back over in John chapter 3, verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus came out of love to save us, not to condemn us. He didn't come with a new list of laws that we have to obey. The Word of God, the Creator of the universe, became a baby. He didn't come as a full-grown man. He had to, he had to learn to walk. He had to learn to read. He had to be potty trained. You ever think about that? Jesus had to be potty trained. He had to learn to feed himself. The creator of the universe, you know, had, had one of those birthday parties where he got a smash cake all over his face. Uh, so imagine that Jesus, the creator of the universe, with chocolate all over his face. He had to learn to, to do all these things. He had to, and how humbling is that? That the creator had to learn to walk. The creator if they had shoelaces at that time, would have had to learn to tie his shoes. He had to learn, he had to learn the very Word of God that He is. That He gave us. He had to learn how to read it. And that's crazy for me. But His incredible love for us moved Him to do that. And then verse 17 tells us He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. Jesus is God's love made visible for us. We see God's love for us in the birth of Christ. We see God's love for us in His life. We see God's love for us in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. We see God loves us. That's where, that's where we see it. We don't see it in the feelings that we have. Because look, your feelings are going to fluctuate. We don't see it in a beautiful sunset or a delicious meal. We see it in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come to condemn us, but He did come to bring something. Number one, He brings redemption. Redemption is a release of people, property, or animals from bondage through payment. That's what that word we saw in 1 John, propitiation is. It's a payment or a ransom. During this time in this culture, if you were a slave, most slave, and their, their slavery was different than our idea of slavery that we have in America because of our ter ter terrible, terrible past. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's good, so don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, slavery is great, but their slavery was more of indentured servitude. You'd have a debt and you would pay it off. But if someone paid your debt for you, they paid the propitiation for your freedom. They paid the ransom for your freedom. And Jesus came to pay our debt to God. To pay the sin debt. He came to release us from bondage. So look, that's great news. He released us from the bondage of, of the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. So if you feel in bondage this morning, Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He came to redeem you from it. Second thing He came to do, He came to bring new creation. What it means to be born again is you are made completely new. That means everything I hate about myself is dead. 
It died on the cross with Jesus. Through His love, the old things that I dealt with, they are dead and I am made new. No matter what my past may hold, those things are dead. All things that we wish we hadn't done, all those things we, we would be ashamed if others find out, they're dead. Now the devil loves to remind us of those things, but God's love killed those things on the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That old, shameful man that I was died on the cross with Jesus because He loved me so much. He also comes to bring adoption. You know, my, my identity is a lot of things. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. But my primary identity, I am a son of the living God. I have all the same rights as Jesus. I am an heir to the throne of God. I am adopted into His family. Now look, as a parent, you know my kids, I love my children. They have disappointed me from time to time. And don't get all high and mighty, yours have to. Uh, and if they're too young, don't wait, don't worry, it's coming. They will one day. Uh, so they've disappointed me, but I can't imagine them doing anything to make me love them any less. They can hurt me. There's, there's nothing like the hurt of a parent. They can worry me. There's nothing like the worry of a parent, but they can't make me stop loving them. Now they can do things that I may have to you know, they, they may, if, if one of them becomes a serial killer, I'm probably going to turn them in if I find out. I'll, I'll visit them on death row, and I'll love them, uh, but I'm going to be a little disappointed in them, and I, there's some judgment, there's some, some repercussions for their actions, but I could never stop loving them. I can be hurt by them, I can be disappointed by them, but I can't imagine not loving them. I can disappoint God. I can hurt God but I can't make Him stop loving me. I can't make Him give up on me. There is nothing I can do to make Him not delight in having me as His child. Another thing He brings is He, he brings justification. We are seen, I am seen by God as righteous and sinless. Not because I am righteous and sinless, because I'm not, but I am seen as righteous and sinless through His death, burial, and resurrection. All my sins are fully, freely, and forever forgiven. All sins. Not just all sins, but that one. Every sin, past, present, and future, are, 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 are forgiven. We are justified through Christ, through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. I am justified. Last thing he brings is he brings union with Christ. John reminds us in 1 John that I am in Christ and he is in me. I am in Christ and he is in me. Here, I think I've told this example before explaining this. I cannot fly. No man can fly. Superman can't fly. Iron Man can't fly. They don't exist. I can't fly. If I were to climb up on the roof of the sanctuary and jump off trying to fly, I'm not going to fly, I'm going to die. Uh, but, you put me in an airplane or a helicopter, 
I can fly. Not me flying. I am just in the thing that is flying. That's how Christian life works. I am in Christ. He does through me what I am unable to do. He does through me what I can't. How do we conquer sin? By buckling down and trying real hard? No. By being in Christ and having Christ in me. Through union with Christ, I am free. You know, there's a lot of believers who are like Nicodemus. They know what they're supposed to do. They know how, to, how they're supposed to act. They know how they're supposed to obey God. But your, your efforts, no matter how, how, how good they are, how strong they are, your efforts do not make God love you. Because to God, your efforts are as filthy rags. God loves you because God is love. And His love does more for us than we could ever imagine. No matter what you've done, you can know that God loves you through His birth, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, and His redeeming resurrection. That's how we know God loves us. We see His love. It brings us redemption. It makes us new. It adopts us into the family of God. It justifies us with God, and it unites us with Christ. If you've never experienced that kind of love, I invite you to accept Him as your Savior today. If you have, let's take some time and thank God for that incredible love He's given us. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.